Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Good afternoon and welcome to the Muni Lowdown, the podcast produced by DebtWire Municipals. And I am your host, Young Lim, and welcome to our show. Today we are continuing our series of guest speakers in Miniland called State of Play. And today we have Natasha Holiday from RBC. Natasha, welcome to our show. Great. Thank you, Young. I'm happy to be here. Very excited. Right. It's a pleasure. So let me give a brief background of Natasha. You are currently the managing director at RBC Capital Markets and head of the New York office where you structure debt and you sell bond in the public markets to raise capital on behalf of large city and state governments to fund public infrastructure. Yes. Natasha, and you've worked for as a banker and, and financial advisor FA for over 14 years, and you've been involved and advised on over 14 billion of mini bond transactions. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, very. All right. Well, impressive background. So let's get to the heart of the matter. And we're talking about infrastructure. And it's something that actually even before President Joe Biden came up with under his American Rescue Plan, the uh, infrastructure plan. We know that infrastructure is critical in mini land in terms of uh, bridges and tunnels and so many different uh, facets of it. So let me let me start briefly with um, breaking down uh, parts of it, and I'm going to focus on for now the the roads and bridges and tunnels. So there was a report by the American Society of Civil Engineers, and they gave a C minus in terms of the way our current um, structure is. And they said that the US is spending only half of what it needs to invest in infrastructure improvements just to bring it up to par. And they're projecting a shortfall of over 2 trillion in the next 10 years. And if the US doesn't pay its this bill, quote unquote bill, that this country will lose probably 10 trillion in economic growth and lose 3 million jobs by the year 2039. So, but the Biden plans have only set aside roughly $621 billion for that component. Sounds like not enough. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, Young. Well, thanks again for, for having me. And I mean, I think you have to start somewhere, right? So when the uh, civil engineers had their report probably eight years ago, uh, the U.S. infrastructure had a grade of a D, <laughs> so there has been some improvement, so, right? Some improvement, yes. <laughs> We're going some up. improvement. But, you know, the reality is that um, there has to be a balance between, you know, federal investments and incentivizing communities to make and or match the investments of our in our physical infrastructure. You know, we think that the, the Biden administration is, has really taken on great strides to try to make initial investments, but then also incentivize uh, state and local governments to make, you know, adequate investments to complement the federal government's commitment. Let's move on to another part of the infrastructure bill. So uh, everyone in Meaningland knows about the the crisis that happened in Flint, Michigan uh, several years ago, and there's 111 billion set aside for clean drinking water. Is this, hopefully this could end things like what happened in Flint and what's going on in New York, New Jersey as well? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Flint and, and Newark are crises that are much, you know, as much about policy and leadership decisions as it is about resources and investment. You know, 
I think the Biden administration has really been focused on setting policy priorities through their American jobs plan, right? And, you know, the next piece is really the execution and implementation, which really rests in the hands of state and local leaders. So, you know, ensuring that there's equitable allocation of those dollars and, you know, enforcement of the lead and copper rule, which, you know, safeguards our drinking water is, is just as important as what the federal government has set aside in the American Jobs Plan. You know, there's an estimated, I think, 6.1 million lead service pipes that are still active. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't think that this is going to be enough um, to, to end crises like Flint and, and Newark and others. Um, you know, a piece of it will be improving our rigorous testing and replacing mm-hmm. those, those, six, those six million of uh, lead pipe service, uh, service pipes that are still right. um, actively in use. Now, let's move on to what happened current, uh, a few weeks ago in terms of the Colonial Pipeline, the cyber attack. And that's, this is a twofold question for you. Yeah. Hard infrastructure areas that could potentially shut down, as we saw last week with the shortage of oil and rising gas price, prices. So the first part of my question is, what other areas do you think could be more vulnerable? And the second part is, since it was a, it was a cyber attack, that's another area that for municipalities to bulk up in terms of their budgets and costs and to avoid f- future hacks. So tell us the overall ramifications of the Colonial situation. Yeah, the Colonial pipeline cyber attack is, um, you know, is, is very significant. And I think it, hopefully that coupled with, you know, what we saw in 2018 that happened with the city of Atlanta, mm-hmm. um, where there was a, a massive cyber attack that effectively, you know, shut down all their email and payroll systems. Right. I hope that it really elevates this notion of government having to invest in cybersecurity, which typically has just been viewed, you know, I think there's some some city state governments that have, have done some real work here, but then there's others that, you know, haven't really dedicated the necessary resources to to ensure that these areas are not vulnerable to attack. That's the biggest ramification. I mean, specifically on our hard, our hard infrastructure assets, it, it revealed kind of a potential deficit in area where you know, could have critical disruptions in how how our infrastructure is accessed, how we have access to gas and oil and, and utilities. So it really does require real investment there. Yeah. And like you said, the municipalities, they have their work cut out for them because some larger ones can cover like a, a subdivision. But you've got local over the years, I think local school districts have been hacked by themselves within yes. the framework of a larger city or town. So should be interesting. But that leads to my next question. And we're speaking of technology in general. And I guess this is a new phrase or buzz, buzz. I don't know what you call these things, catchphrases. <laughs> so broadband is internet is a new electricity. So do you think 100 billion can bring in high speed access across the whole country and eliminate the digital divide? Yeah, you know, broadband is an essential service. So it's it's just like water. It's just like sewer. It's just like electricity. I, I completely agree with that characterization. You know, if COVID highlighted anything, it highlighted the disparities of access to broadband and what really qualifies as kind of high speed, reliable broadband. So a hundred billion dollars, again, it's it's um, it's gonna be very, very helpful to advancing access to broadband. I don't think it's gonna be the solution. I think what we're gonna have to see here is the way that public investment can be married with private investment. Uh, to really facilitate and advance our broadband access, particularly in our rural communities 
and even sometimes in some of our, our urban our urban centers where you know we we can access through phone services and things of that nature but you know as remote school and remote work showed you know those not necessarily being adequate you know to to serve to serve our populations and because it is an essential service it's just it's really a, it's a requirement of government to to facilitate access to broadband uh yeah in this uh post covid world i mean like you said it's an absolute essential um, that's why it's called the new electricity. But at the same time, yeah. who knows what other <laughs> things can happen? Like I've heard, um, you know, people are already sick of like, as I think Jamie Dimon said, basically, we don't want no more Zoom calls. But basically, let's get back to the <laughs> real world. So. Right. But technology is going to be with us. And I think that, that you know, you know, the hybrid, uh, the hybrid work week um, and hybrid work structures are are here to stay. And I think that those will oscillate over time. As far as, you know, who's in the office and how much they're spending time in the office, you know, but technology is here and and it's facilitating us to continue to, you know, perform our jobs and our duties. And and so if we want to be continue to be, you know, economically viable and competitive, we're going to have to ensure that broadband access is available to to all parts of our of our populations. Absolutely. Now, that is technology, but something that we can that's something we can hopefully control in the future but something we cannot control is nature and i want to talk about um uh back in the in the winter time when texas had those huge power outages there's got to be some lessons there and especially what we learned from texas is because they were sort of isolated in terms of their grid they couldn't be there wasn't any outside help to bring them back in so do you think we need i guess a nationwide electrical grid instead of these isolated pockets like what happened in texas yeah, and you know we got pretty far. I mean, so Europe has already done this, mm-hmm. a unified grid, and the United States has the government, federal government has, uh, you know, put forth some pretty substantial proposals on unifying the grid and what it would take and why that's a necessary investment. You know, investment in infrastructure is directly tied to economic competitiveness. You know, and as we think about coming out of this latest crisis. You know, who do we want to be in the world? How do we want to operate? We've got to make the necessary infrastructure investments to ensure our economic competitiveness, not just on a, on a, on a national stage, but really on a global stage. You know, and so when we think about the electric grid, I mean, there's three main components, right? So you've got the generation, the transmission, and then and the distribution. And, you know, generation and, and distribution typically, you know, can pay for themselves, but it really is the transmission piece that needs government intervention and government ingenuity and support to, um, to to make those, you know, to make it an interconnected system. So I definitely think that that's an area that, that we should try to focus because when Texas had its big freeze, when there's a heat wave out on the West coast or even in the United, even in the Northeast, when we saw probably 10 years ago, we had a major blackout, maybe right. even a little longer, you know, this marries very clearly uh, with overall climate change and climate crisis concerns, right? And so as we continue to see movements in climate, these type of events become more customary and more common. And the challenge with that is that our system isn't unified in a way that other regions of the country can, can carry the load when there's disruptions. And so you know, as we think and chart a path toward 
mitigating our climate risk, mm-hmm. a unified grid in the United States supports us being able to be viable and economically competitive, even when climate issues arise. Interesting. So let's switch to ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance. So give me your thoughts on that. Uh, Seems to be, they talked about green bonds, seems to be coming, but not quite to the point where it's more, I guess, the point where it's obviously saturating the market. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, you know, RBC is really a leader in uh, in the green bond and sustainable finance uh, area. We have a significantly coordinated kind of approach to ESG really on a global level uh, with a coordinated sustainable finance group uh, located out of Canada, out of Toronto, that, you know, really coordinates across the firm in strategic ways. So this is an area that we spend a lot of time focusing and helping our clients understand not only their personal, uh, you know, carbon emissions, footprint and sustainable frameworks internally, but also from an investment vehicle standpoint. The global sustainable bond market is really significantly larger than the U.S. market. And in part, it's because they also have uniform standards, which has really allowed them at this point in maturity in that market to be able to see pricing benefit. Uh, on, the, on the other hand, the United States has really been slower to adopt uniform standards uh, and for what qualifies as a green bond. But we've also seen tremendous year-over-year growth. And so we expect that that will continue to expand. So I think that the keys for green bonds in the U.S. is uh, kind of twofold. Uh, One is coming up with more unified standards Mm -hmm. uh, that people adopt on a consistent format and and fashion and and in disclosure. And then actually getting out into the marketplace and finding uh, investors who pockets of investors who really care about kind of double bottom line investing. The other side of this is is asset managers, you know, who continue to raise significant ESG funds and more sustainable and social bond, social impact funds. But I think what you're, they're also looking for tends to be a little a little higher yield than some of the bonds that are currently in the marketplace that are designated as green. And so I think there has to be kind of a recalibration on both sides. Uniform standards from our issuers, but then also asset managers who are who are willing to deploy those funds potentially at slightly lower yields. Mm, interesting. Uh, and I'll throw you another acronym: <laughs> P P threes, public private yeah. partnerships. Now, so with two billion on the table, and if that's not going to be enough to fix infrastructure, could we possibly see more P threes? Where you know what, this local government says we want. A private partner to help defray the cost. Yeah, do we see an influx, uh, uh, you know, a surge in those kind of deals? I I hope so. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there there are inherent challenges that have prohibited uh, P threes from from really taking hold in in the United States when compared to other parts of the world. And in part is it's the industry that I work in, municipal finance. Uh, you know, no other country in the world has a tax exempt financing vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everyone else finances in a taxable market. Um, and so that poses a little bit of an economic challenge from city and state governments understanding, you know, from a cost benefit perspective on the economic side, why should I enter this P3 arrangement with a private 
partner where their cost of capital and cost of financing is higher than mine. But I really think we actually have to get away from from that that question and really focus on the reality of the situation. It's exactly what you said. Two trillion isn't enough to fix our infrastructure, right? Um, and the reality is city and state governments have limited resources. So what we have to do is figure out how to create partnerships that are economical and equitable, but can really incentivize and fuel infrastructure development. Because remember, this is all about economic competitiveness in the end. And so, you know, we've seen kind of fits and starts, but I think we're asking the wrong question. I think, you know, people are looking at financing costs and actually not looking at, you know, really kind of solving the core issue, which is bringing all of our infrastructure up to a level that ensures our competitiveness from an economic standpoint over the long term. And the only way that we can do that is by creating strategic partnerships with private partners. The other piece of that, Young, and I think this is this is also, you know, important, is that, you know, government has core competencies, things that that it can do that no one no one else can do as well. Right. right? Building infrastructure is not necessarily one that only government can do. Right. And so we've seen that in some P3s, uh, Tappan Zee Bridge being, you know, being one example where, you know, there's tons of private expertise around construction um, and project management. And, you know, and government can then utilize its resources on the core things that really only it can do. And so, you know, leveraging private expertise in those instances just makes a lot of sense and it gives it gives the whole institution more leverage and kind of lifts the boat. So, Natasha, I've got one last question for you. And I know you told me you're a basketball fan. I'm going to say you're King James on the three-point line, game seven. <laughs> it's Your championship's on the line. <laughs> so let's talk about, since um, we cover muni, muni bonds, I have a question for muni bond investors. How should they position themselves? Meaning, let me preface it by saying, over the years since you know the COVID started, and you had that huge outflows uh, last year. Now, but at the same time, instead of like, you know, like as opposed to the stock market where it's like, you know what, stock's down, it'll go back up again. But, you know, bonds are obviously long term. If you got money into, let's say, airport debt, that's over, you know, years into for maturity. So could this be like a golden age for munis where you've got federal stimulus help, you've got the Fed keeping lowest, lower uh, rates low. I mean, as a muni investor, where should they be, or what are the what what any kind of regulations yeah. you have? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think you know the question in the midst of COVID and the question coming out of COVID is different. The the, the, the question in COVID is, you know, okay, what's going to happen to to our city and state governments? You know, can they recover? Well, what the federal stimulus did was effectively provide, you know, local government, uh, state government, a two-year stopgap to come out of this health and economic crisis in a more stable state, right? And so the challenge now becomes a, a bigger strategic question, right? So we need we need local governments and state governments to start asking bigger strategic questions around what our communities are going to look like on the other side of this crisis. And so I would hope that muni bond investors are listening for that because that's how you get comfortable with making those long-term investments in bonds, right? So we're talking infrastructure, you know, this that's going to last 
30, 40, 50, sometimes even 100 years when we're mm-hmm. talking about, you know, water and sewer infrastructure. Right. Right. Um, but the questions around how are we going to expand broadband? How are we going to prepare for technology advancements? You know, how are we going to diversify our economy? Those are the questions that our governments, you know, have to start answering in a, in a strategic kind of multi-pronged way so that muni investors say, you know, this is 100% worth our long-term investment. Federal stimulus has provided a stable state for governments to operate and to give us time and space to ask those critical questions so that when we look at our CIPs and we look at our, our capital improvement plans, that our capital improvement is not only maintenance and repair, but it's also going to start putting us on a path to make these sustainable investments that can help drive economic competitiveness over the long term. Yeah, I think that I mean I think that that's that's mostly it. I mean, one of the things on the other side, Young, that we have been seeing from many bond investors is, you know, the the low rates are starting to starting to feel a little uncomfortable, mm-hmm. and they don't want to necessarily make that investment now, given a low rate environment, if 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 rates are going to increase, if the economy is really going to take off, and so. You know, I think that there has to be a balance, you know, a golden age will require a balance between both. So investors want more yield. Obviously, issuers want issuers want to get more done at the lowest cost that they possibly can. You know, issuers are going to get com- have to get comfortable with a slightly higher interest rate cost mm-hmm. uh, to fund infrastructure, but they shouldn't stop. We should push through because this is a potential golden age. You know, these are the roaring 20s. For our century, <laughs> yes. you know, and but if we don't make those investments, we don't really set out that big picture. You will see you could potentially see uh, investors kind of pull back. The challenge is that there's just so much cash out there. Right. <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're flush with cash. There's so much money. It has to be deployed. Mm-hmm. You know, we see it on our deals. You know, even when ratios became untenable from an investor standpoint, there was only a small pullback before more money had to had to go into the marketplace. So it is ripe for a golden age. But I, I want us to make sure that we're asking the right big strategic questions about who do we want to be for the next 100 years? Yes, definitely. And we'll keep that in mind. And hopefully, like you said, with, with that cash, we could, we could put it to work, fix our infrastructure, things like that. So, so critical in the mini market at the same time, hopefully it's not so roaring into the twenties that we have inflation because that, that's like the big fear in, in the markets right now. So, yeah. but we shall see, but Natasha, thank you so much for your time today. Very insightful. And we hope to have you back in the show. I hope I hit the three, uh, <laughs> if the shot clock, uh, runs down, uh, like, like my guy, King James, like your guy, King James. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm a MJ fan myself, but you know what? That's 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 the that's the old days. So, I'll I don't know. Both greats. They're both yeah, greats. Exactly. They're, they're both greats. So that's awesome. But no, thank you for having me. And I do. I hope that we can uh, have you know more conversations and in the future on in Muniland. All right. Thank you, Natasha. Awesome. Thank you. And that is our show for today. Many thanks to Natasha Holiday from RBC Capital Markets. And always to you, our listeners out there who tune in week after week for the latest on distressed muni debt on the mean lowdown, the podcast produced by Delaware Municipals. Take care, everybody, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Muni Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.